Welcome back to the ninth episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today, we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the inflated housing market in Europe as well as America, and two stories about how the November elections are heating up. And of course, we will end with today's Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into the stories. Our first one comes today from the Washington Free Beacon. Republican Joe Odia thinks he has the formula to win in a blue state. Some Republican candidates are scrambling to revamp their campaign websites, updating their positions on abortion, and to get in line with the general election. Not Joe Odia. That's not because his staff hasn't gotten around to it or because he refuses to bow to media pressure, but because the pro-choice Colorado Republican doesn't think he has anything to run from in a year in which abortion has become a central campaign issue. Odia may be the most disciplined Republican running for the Senate this year. At times, his straightforward messaging borders on boring, (laughs) yet in the current Republican Party environment, that may be a winning strategy. And Colorado is turning into a glimmer of hope for the party, feeling less ebullient and about the prospects of recapturing the upper chamber. And yeah, I just a starting note, I think that's a tact that a lot of Republicans are failing at, or they're just coming off as too strong. And though that really plays well with the base, It doesn't play well when it comes to getting those moderates, those people in the middle. So though it's a boring strategy, and the Republican Party has been boring, they've been sitting doing practically nothing, or when they do do something, it's very minor and they expect everybody to celebrate it in a large way. It's a very interesting strategy, and we'll see if it works out for them. Quote, if any other candidates can learn something from me, it's just stay disciplined, end quote, Odia told the Washington Free Beacon. Quote, stay on message and make sure we're delivering the message that's going to get us across the finish line, end quote. A survey from the Republican Attorney General's Association finds Odia in a statistical tie with Senator Michael Bennett in the state, in a state where President Joe Biden won by 13 points few, if any, other Republicans running for office in a competitive district or state are in such a good position at the beginning of September. Democrats know Odia's campaign is resonating with voters. In what Politico described as a, quote, panic, Democratic organizations spent millions of dollars in a desperate attempt to boost Odia's former primary opponent, the state representative Ron Hanks who boasted on the campaign trail that he was, quote, 100% pro-life, end quote, and rallied at the Capitol on January 6th in the final weeks of the race. So another interesting thing to take away here, and I won't get too lost in my own thoughts, we'll get through this story, but it's interesting to see these kind of political maneuvers from the left. They think that certain candidates are more beatable, so they're putting funding behind them. And as we'll learn here in a second, it actually backfired. 
So I think this political miscalculation that they had over the last year, which is if we throw all our money behind, or at least some of our money behind really pro-Donald Trump Republicans, then it will benefit us long term. It was a bold political strategy, and we'll see if it works out here in November. But as this article elaborates, it didn't necessarily work here in Colorado. Odillo's message of shutting down immigration, banning radical sex ed in schools, and cutting spending does not differ much from the rest of the Republican Party field nationwide, except on single-issue abortion. Odia is pro-choice. He supports restrictions on abortion after 20 weeks, a practice embraced by many European countries. The Democratic effort to nominate Hanks may backfire in the general election, as voters were inundated in the race's early days with ads describing Odia as a moderate, disloyal to former President Donald Trump. With Odia as a nominee, the race has shifted from, quote, likely Democrat to lean Democrat, according to the Cook Political Report. At a candidate forum in Littleton last month, arch-conservatives sporting Trump shirts and, quote, let's go Brandon signs appeared relatively unconcerned with those views. Their focus instead was on critical race theory, illegal immigration, and a stream of fentanyl flowing over the southern border. One woman who identified as Catholic accused Odia during a question-and-answer session of being no different than Bennett on the issue of abortion. The audience was silent, and a few rolled their eyes and shook their heads. Quote, I'm Catholic. I have my own faith. I really think my critics on abortion need to do the research, end quote. Odia told the woman, quote, Michael Bennett has come out and said he supports late-term abortion up to and including in the birth canal. I think that's outrageous. I think that we need some balance. I've stated very early during the primary my stance on this, and I've been for a mother's rights, end quote. There's a long-standing conviction among political operatives in Colorado that moderating on abortion could be the key to success for the Republican Party. Bennett has never cracked 50% in a race since he was appointed to the seat in 2009, and political operatives believe Republicans blew an opportunity the following year when the Republican Party racked up long-shot victories in states across the country, such as Massachusetts, but not Colorado. A Colorado political operative working with Odia's campaign pointed to the 2010 Republican Senate nominee, Rep. Ken Buck, who took a staunchly pro-life stance, including in the case of rape and incest, a view he broadcast on Meet the Press two weeks before the election, in which Democrats drew attention to close to the days of the race. Bennett then won with 48% of the vote, despite Buck leading by an average of three points in the polls just before the election. So this is, this is something that both sides need to do. They need to look back, not focus, of course, focus on current issues, but they need to look at the track record of those issues in their states. This is a, a great guide, and whoever this political analyst is, uh, he doesn't mention their name, but whoever this political analyst is, they did the basics. They said, what issues caused us to lose in the past and where should we position ourselves? 
Or if not, where should we position ourselves? Because you don't want to move, you don't want to change your values. But how do you message that? How do you get that message, your position across to people so that they'll vote for you? And the reason I think this is so important is because it lends itself to actually caring about what the voter wants. It's not about, oh, I'm part of this party, so I will follow the line, I will toe the line, and I will be a mainstay Republican. No, no, no. It's what do my voters want from me? How can I best serve them? And this is a tax that could definitely be taken across the country by both sides of the aisle. It is also possible that Buck misread his own party's electorate. Just 56% of Colorado Republicans polled in February before the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade disagreed with the statement that, quote, all Colorado women should have access to abortion, end quote. An overwhelming majority of voters in the state, including a critical Republican voting constituency, whites without a college degree, agreed. Voters in Pueblo, Colorado, which sits in a rural district represented by Rep. Lauren Boebert, were not animated by the abortion issue. All of those who spoke with Free Beacon were open to voting for Republican in November, and they said that they were far more concerned about economic issues and Democratic prosecutors and judges letting criminals back on the street with light sentences. Quote, I'm not big on any of the politicians elected in the state right now. I mostly look at platforms and make decisions on who will do the best thing for the state. End quote, said Chris Diaz, a rancher in his 20s from a neighboring town who said he leans conservative. Quote, I don't take a hard position on abortion when deciding to vote because I understand that there are circumstances where it may be necessary. On the same side, I personally don't agree with the practice. End quote. Another woman, Angela Texo, said during a cattle auction at the Colorado State Fair that she was personally pro-life, but... Texo added, a candidate's position on abortion wasn't something she's paying attention to during the election cycle. Quote, I don't think abortion should be banned here, she said. Quote, it just isn't something I really factor in when picking a candidate. End quote. Views like this in a red district like Pueblo show how describing the Colorado electorate is a challenge for many Republicans. Judging by presidential election results since 2008, the state is bluer than Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. And as someone who lives in Virginia, I can tell you now, up until a few years ago, it was, it was pretty darn blue. So that says a lot. <laughs> if anyone who lives in the state knows that is far from the case, the governor, Jared Polis, Democrat, has broken with his party on issues related to COVID-19 and taxes. Most of the state remains rural, and many voters who moved to Denver and Colorado Springs metropolitan areas from California left their home states to flee what they considered incompetent liberal governance. Bennett is actually aware of this, and his campaign's central pitch is that he's a centrist. He's a rugged Coloradan, enjoying frontier life. He wants voters to forget his tremendous wealth which he has skyrocketed during his time in office and his voting record over 98% of the time with Biden in a state suffering from Biden hangover. It is here on the question of authenticity where Odia may have the biggest advantage over his opponent. The adopted son of a police officer, Odia's first job was as a union carpenter, carpenter 
before he landed at Colorado State University on a scholarship, and then he dropped out to start his own construction company. Bennett was born in New Delhi, India, to the lifelong Democratic operative Douglas Bennett. He grew up in Washington, D.C., and attended the exclusive St. Almond's School before graduating from Wesleyan University and Yale Law School. After law school, Bennett worked for the Ohio Governor Richard Kelsey, a former colleague of his father. He later served in the Clinton administration after cashing out as a manager directing at Ann Schultz Investment Company. His net worth is estimated to be in the tens of millions. The, quote, privileged background, and that's me adding that in there, not them. Odio says he has ended up costing Colorado. Bennett hasn't cut the same figure as moderate Democrats such as Christian Cinema or Joe Manchin or managed to extract concessions from the White House and party leadership on major legislation. Quote, Bennett should have made his Senate vote count for Colorado, end quote, Odia told the Free Beacon. Quote, he wants and asks Joe Biden which votes he should take and then rubber stamps the agenda. And that's a problem. And that's why I'm going to get elected here, end quote. Unlike candidates who have felled Republican hopes in the past, there's unfortunately an entire Wikipedia page dedicated to, quote, rape and pregnancy statements controversies in the 2012 United States elections, end quote. Odia has avoided cringe-inducing sound bites. He speaks in plain English, quote, we got fentanyl killing our kids, and, quote, we need to complete the wall are the sorts of things you'll hear Odia tell voters on the campaign trail. Odia's remarks don't cause voters to raise their eyebrows in confusion at references to buzzwords or ideological concepts found on Twitter or niche policy journals. As the Mitch McConnell-aligned Senate Leadership Fund pulls spending from Arizona over concerns that the Republican nominee is not electable, There are rising hopes among Colorado Republicans that national groups could bring spending big for ODEA. For now, the ODEA campaign is focused on retail politics. Quote, we built a huge coalition across the state. We've got Trump Republicans. We've got GOP Republicans. We've got the unaffiliated. And we've got some really disenchanted Democrats that are mad at their party for all these politics, ODEA said in Littletown. Quote, I want to do what's right for Colorado. And what is encouraging about this, in my mind, is a candidate who is leaning one way. You know he's conservative on a lot of issues, but he's willing to come to the middle, maybe for personal reasons, maybe for political reasons. But either way, he's willing to come to the middle and say, what can I do for Colorado? What can I do for people that I may disagree with? And also, what can I do for the people that are disenchanted by that other party that hasn't served them? He sounds like a man of the people. And I would probably put him more in the populist category, which is something that we're seeing across the United States. Whether you like it or not, Trump was a populist candidate. Now, some of his positions are a little far out there for some people, but... He was a populist candidate. He spoke to the working man. And it sounds like Odia is trying to do the exact same thing, but tailored towards Colorado. So I can't wait to see where this populist wave takes us in the next few years. Um, But we'll just have to see. We'll have to watch it pan out. I think it's encouraging. 
All right, so now the other story that's talking about how this November election is heating up. Biden predicts a really difficult two years if Democrats lose the midterms. President Biden on Monday acknowledged, quote, a really difficult two years, end quote, if Democrats lose control of Congress in November midterms elections. Biden said at the Democratic National Committee fundraising event in Boston that he would spend a lot more time, quote, in the veto because he would have difficulty getting, quote, anything done legislatively if Republicans take over. Quote, we need to control the House and the Senate to win the race up and down the ticket. End quote. Biden said, according to a pool of reporters, quote, if we lose the House or lose the Senate, it's going to be really difficult two years. I'll be spending more time in the veto being unable to get anything done, end quote. Biden, however, also said that he was optimistic about the country and noted that he believes young people, 18 to 30, are, quote, the single most engaged generation, end quote. So two things here. One, it does, he doesn't necessarily offer a reason yet. Um, and when he does, when this article points out what his reasoning is, it doesn't quote him as saying it, so he may have been very general about it. But when you make a statement like that, we need to win the House and the Senate, I get in the political sense, oh, just to keep my opposition out. But when you make a statement like that and you're trying to relate to people and you're trying to compel them to your side and make them want to vote for you and feel like they need to vote for you, which is what he's making it sound like, you have to give them a reason. You cannot just say, oh, if I can't get anything done if we lose. Okay, great. But tell me what you want to get done if you win. Because if you do win and then you're starting to get things done, I want to know what that agenda is going to be. And I think it's left out on purpose because some people may not like the Democrats' agenda. But that's just something I noticed, and I think it's interesting. Uh, The other part that I really like here and kind of want to talk about is uh, that he's saying that people 18 to 30 are the single most engaged generation. I think he's not necessarily right, mainly because a lot of people in my generation do not necessarily care about politics as much. But the ones that do are engaged in the way that I don't think he would enjoy. A lot of people I've talked to, not saying they're Democrat or Republican, but they are definitely not satisfied with the current system. They're definitely disillusioned with the American system, whether they're progressive or they're on the conservative side. There seems to be a lot more dislike for the current way of doing politics in this generation, which is does lead to them being more engaged. He's not wrong. But I don't think it's going to cut well for him. And that's why I think the populist point from the last article is going to be very interesting with this upcoming generation. Quote, I'm genuinely more optimistic about the prospects for America, not because I'm president, because of the nature of where we are as a country, he said. He noted the midterm elections would be less than two months away, again, marking the urgency of the issues that are on the line, such as right to privacy, school safety for kids, and the climate. So they say that, and then their next line is, quote, it's about democracy itself, he said. So they don't provide quotes for any of his other policy positions. 
but then they do provide a quote when he's using the most inflammatory language, which is about democracy itself as extremely inflammatory. Does that mean he's wrong? I don't know. I, I can't see the future. I don't know if, oh, if certain people get elected in or to other people don't get elected in, is the democracy going to be over? I think it's hyperbolic. I don't see it happening. But, you know, he can use whatever language he likes to rile up his base. Quote, he also warned that if Democrats lose the election, they will also lose a chance to codify Roe v. Wade since the Supreme Court overturned in, it ter- overturned it in June. Biden reiterated his support for codifying the right to abortion instead of Republicans take over. They will likely seek ways to codify the Supreme Court decision, making it illegal. And quote, mark my words, you're going to see a move on other privacy issues for contraception to marriage and the whole range of things, he said, end quote. And I think that's when I come down and I agree if the Republicans win they're going to take drastic action if they get both chambers of the house they are going to take drastic action which may not be liked by a lot of Americans so when he said that I'm like 100% on board see there's your moment and you can talk about that issue but it is still a political one in that it is oh vote for me because my opposition is going to do something bad In future statements from the president or other Democratic lawmakers or people that want to get elected, I would love to see them push their agenda more. And rather than, oh, vote for me because I'm a Democrat, not a Republican, start talking about what they want to do when they get in there besides ending the filibuster and possibly using the Senate to pack the Supreme Court. All right, let's move on to our last major story. Property faces a slow reckoning as interest rates rise. For property owners, rising interest rates bring back uncomfortable memories from the years leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. Commercial landlords who learned useful lessons about debt since then, except to carry less of it, face a slow reckoning. While real estate rates have been rising faster in the U.S., Europe's real estate owners look more vulnerable to pricier debt. Listed properties, stocks in the euro area carry net borrowing of 14%. Their projected earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization on average, according to the Bank of America, compared to six times in the U.S. For the first time since 2009, borrowing costs for the euro area area property industry are now higher than the return many investment-grade assets can earn. The average cost of debt is 4.4%, while yield on well-located prime office buildings in cities like Paris and Madrid are around 3%. Some hot types of properties, such as e-commerce warehouse, also now cost more to fund than they yield, though rents are rising fast. This historic shift is likely to be cemented by the week's 7.5 percentage increase in interest rates by the European Central Bank. Today's high debt levels may not be as risky as during the financial crisis. Property owners have become less reliant on bank loans, which tend to be relatively short maturities, and have been issuing long-dated corporate bonds instead. Between 2001 and 2009, European real estate firms issued 3.8 billion euros of bonds on a yearly average, 
data from UBS shows. Since then, yearly issuance has more than tripled, and the average maturity of property debt is around 6.5 years. But companies still need to refinance up to 15% of their borrowings every year. As more debt matures, earnings will erode by 3-7% to annually from higher interest bills depending on the type of property, according to the Bank of America. Some landlords will be able to offset these rent increases, but probably not owners of offices or shopping malls as demand for tenants weaken. So this is interesting, and I don't know if it's a temporary shift because we're coming out of COVID and people still may not want to go outside. They're still seeing um, some illnesses in their, some cases in their country that they don't like and they don't want to go out. Or is it because we've shifted to an e-commerce economy? We were already going that way ever since the dot-com boom and the recession in 2008 when we started to see online companies provide cheaper products and it's more convenient. So I wonder if the underlying thing here is an e-commerce shift, people more willing to buy online, or a temporary change that people are just not going out as much as they used to. We'll see. I think that one will pan out. I just, I don't want Amazon to take over the world, so I hope it's the temporary one rather than the e-commerce shift, but we'll see. Falling valuations are also a risk. As financial costs rise, buyers will only make an acceptable return from property if they pay less. They are growing reluctant to sign deals at today's high prices. Purchases of commercial real estate in Europe were down 9% in the second quarter of 2022 compared with a year earlier, CBRE data shows. A dip in valuations would send real estate companies' loans to value ratios up. Some landlords will need to unload properties to avoid breaching covenants. Two of Europe's most indebted real estate companies, German residential landlord Viona and shopping mall operator Ubinol Ronimico Westfield, geez, already have plans to sell buildings worth billions of euros to patch their balance sheets. As selling means losing the cash these assets generate, one risk for investors of property stocks is that lower income leads to dividend cuts. Some European office real estate investment trusts are already paying out more in dividends than they generate in funds from operations adjusted for capital expenditure. If the last period of rising interest rates ends up shaking the very foundations of the property market, the current one may chip away at it bit by bit. So yeah, I think it's an interesting comparison to 2008. I think a lot of people, a lot of companies learned their lesson in 2008, but they may have restructured in a way that they kind of look like uh, Evergrande in China which is they are constantly betting on their future. If you're taking out long-term bonds, you're betting on your future that in three years you'll be able to pay back that bond. So basically, you're not taking out a loan because, like they said, the maturity time for those is shorter, but you're betting on your future. So you have to make revenue in order to pay back the bonds, and then you issue more bonds so that you can buy more real estate so you can have a larger portfolio and then make returns from it and then pay back the bonds. So it's kind of a loop and they can kind of get 
caught, and it can be a little bit dangerous. So we'll see how this pans out. Bonds are safer than loans because, for the most part, unless you have a type of bond that your uh, the people you issue it to can come back and say, oh, I, I need the yield on the bond right now. I'll take the lower interest rate. Unless you have those type of bonds, they're safer than loans because, for the most part, if the bank says, oh, well, I don't think that you're going to be able to pay this back in a few weeks. I want my money now. They can come for it, and that's why it's a little bit more risky to have those loans, besides the fact that they're short-term. But it sounds like Europe is a little worse off in America, so there's nothing to worry about. I did think it was interesting that um, listed property stocks in the euro area carry a net borrowing of 14 times their projected earnings. That's really high. In America, it's about six times their projected earnings. So we learned a little bit from the 2008 financial crisis, it sounds like. But we are not necessarily out of the hot water yet. So we'll, we'll see how this all pans out here in the next year or so with a slow rise of interest rates because the Fed's trying to tackle this inflation. All right, so we got through the serious stuff. Now we come to the Daily Delight from the Daily Mail. A furry good life. The Queen Consort's rescue Jack Russell's Beth and Bluebell will join her and Charles in Buckingham Palace, following in the paw prints of Her Majesty's Corgis. The Queen Consort's two adorable rescue dogs are expected to make Buckingham Palace their new home. Camilla, 75, is expected to bring her beloved Jack Russell's Beth and Bluebell, who she adopted from Battersea Dogs and Cats home to the palace in London, when she moves in, according to the Daily Express. Buckingham Palace is no stranger to furry friends, as Queen Elizabeth owned over 30 corgis and dorgies during her reign. Meanwhile, the Queen's two corgis will be cared for by Prince Andrew and the Duchess of York in Windsor. Maddock and Sandy, who will now be adopted by the Queen's third son and Miss Ferguson, were gifted to the late Queen following the death of Prince Philip. In an TV documentary showing the intimate glimpse into Camilla's personal life, the Duchess spoke about her rescue dogs, Beth, 11, and Bluebell, 10. Charles, King Charles, 73, also seems very fond of the pooches, as they featured in the couple's 15th wedding anniversary portrait in 2020. Speaking previously about the dogs, the Queen Consort said, quote, The nice thing about dogs is you can sit them down, you could have a nice long conversation. You could be cross and you could be sad. And they'll just sit there looking at you, wagging their tail. Camilla first adopted Beth from the renowned charity after the p- poor pup was dumped, BBC News reports. They found Bluebell two or three weeks later, wandering about in the woods, no hair on her, covered in sores, and virtually dead. And they nursed her back to health, to life, and her hair grew again. She's very sweet, but a tiny bit neurotic, shall we say. So, yeah, this story, I, I love this. I had a Jack Russell as the first pet of my own, quote-unquote. We had a, a dog when I was younger, but the first dog that I can actually remember, I remember getting her on Christmas. Abby, she was a Jack Russell Terrier. Love her to death. She has since passed, but... She was there for me all throughout my childhood. So it's nice to see that they're carrying on the Queen's legacy, Queen Elizabeth's legacy of having a 
quote, royal pet. And I think it's going to be some cute photo ops. Let's just say that. All right, if you want to find any of the stories that I mentioned or read here today, they'll be in the description below that like and subscribe button. And with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.